Ready? Yeah. Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. I am Drew. What's up, everybody? Hey, hey. So this week's episode, we are continuing our series read-through of Gundam The Origin by Yasuhiko <clears throat> Yasuhiko Yasuhiko? I'm You want to do it over? No, no, leave it in. I mean, this is this is organic. This is real radio right here. You're better at this than I am. You say the name. <laughs> Today, we are continuing our read-through of Mobile Suit Gundam, The Origin. We are reading Volume 7, Battle of Loom. Gundam, The Origin is by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko and translated by Melissa Tanaka. How's that? That's far better. And you know, I want us to—I want this to be as organic an experience as possible. So, I want all—all all the nitty-gritty and all the dirt and the ugliness, all the good and the bad in it. So, you know, we—we we know that we're giving the people a real experience. We're so sacrificing this- our cleanliness for the sake of realness, I guess. Yeah. And I've, I've listened to enough podcasts where, you know, not everything needs to be so heavily produced or per- perfect that, you know, it's it's just part of the fun of uh, a casual conversation being captured on. We're, we're not professionals because no one's paying us. Oh, yeah, that's definitely the case. <laughs> so <laughs> so until we start making that kind of money, then, you know, you're not. I'm not being paid for any sense of professionalism. Like my, real we're not job. holding ourselves to any sort of professional standards. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. You get it. You get it. You get me. You've you've summed me up in in a sentence. How much would the good people have to pay you, Albert, in order for you to feel obligated to record a podcast of professional level quality? Oh, see, that's the second part of it that's a little harder to capture because there's probably no amount of money that they could pay me where I would maintain that level of professionalism. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, uh, I just don't have the willpower for it. I can maybe give you one or two shows where it, it sounds pretty clean and I, I, I come off as, uh, you know, pretty dignified and respectable, but eventually it'll eat away at me and, You've got to be true to yourself. Yeah, it'll only be a matter of probably minutes before the real me uh, emerges from my cocoon of hate and spite and bile. To thine own self be true. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's a very poetic way of putting it. I think I stole that from Shakespeare or somebody, some dead poet. Uh, You know, quoted uh, Shemp from the three stooges <laughs> man i don't even remember their names uh most of the time it's mo larry and curly i believe shemp was the forgotten stooge okay okay that's why i didn't recognize shemp <laughs> yeah it was uh mo larry and shemp and then curly came later he he's kind of uh that fifth beetle that uh quit before i think ringo came on dang dude you're dropping some real esoteric knowledge here this this might be the very first Gundam podcast that has a Three Stooges reference. And a Beatles reference. Yeah, all yeah. within the first five minutes. Yeah, see, we know things. Useless things, but we know things. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's only a matter of time until we get a Hitler reference. Uh, I mean, 
because this is being publicly recorded and uh, a, a matter of public record, I was trying not to not to breach that subject until, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe we can keep that for the fans of the Patreon. <laughs> See, if we had a Patreon, then technically you could consider yourself a professional because then yeah. you'd be getting money. <laughs> and I'd be apparently talking about Hitler on the podcast way more. <laughs> That's that's the content you pay for, guys. <laughs> My thoughts on the subject of Hitler. We'll Wait till you can... find out what I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> Is he for it? Is he against it? Who knows? You'll have to pay to find out. <laughs> we just won't know until somebody yeah. starts paying Albert some sweet, sweet podcast money. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You you want to know yeah. what Albert thinks about any? topic or subject imaginable give him some money he'll give you his opinion exactly that's my paywall uh the the free version only gives you my base uh my base um, the free version only gives you his opinions on comics (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) for the really abhorrent stuff that's the stuff you have to pay for (laughs) the stuff that paints me in the light of a monster or a saint depending on who you ask uh all right that was good (laughs) shall we get to our episode yeah so you know we've been uh going through the last couple of volumes we're on volume seven this time around and um you know we're going to basically just follow it by a section to section breakdown of everything that we've read up to this point uh i mean not uh, of everything in this current volume and we'll just uh follow along in that way that sound about right yep yep so just as a brief recap of where we're at in the story when we left off in volume six we're at the start of the one-year war i mean of course the people living in this world of the story they don't know it's a one-year war but for us readers that's generally what Gundam fans refer to this uh, period of the universal century. But Zeon has launched their attack. They've officially declared war against the Federation. And now we're seeing all the devastation and the direct results of that decision. Yeah, it's a pretty brutal volume overall. But uh, I guess if this is what you've been waiting for, this is kind of the nuts and bolts. This is the meat of the sandwich. I, I don't know my analogies. They're kind of all over the place. Are we eating the nuts and bolts? Are we are we using the meats to screw in uh, uh, brackets? I, I don't know. Sometimes writers can be really ham-fisted. And I guess if you got big ham fists, you can hammer in some nails. <laughs> Uh, I did not think that you would uh, go there, but I I accept it. <laughs> I, I accept it with open arms and with my ham fists. <laughs> my fists now I'm getting hungry. Ham. Yeah. <laughs> I could use a sandwich. <laughs> my fists of hams. <laughs> so volumes five and six began the flashback arc of the origin, and both of those. Volumes covered quite a bit of years. Between volumes five and six, 
we've covered from, I think, I want to say like the early 60s or at least the the middle 60s. And now we're at uh, UC 0079. So quite a quite a bit of time has passed since since uh, we began the flashback arc. And this is volume. It really only covers probably a period of a couple months early on in the war or several months at the most. Uh, so things kind of slow down and, and we get to zoom in and really focus on this moment in, in history, in Gundam history. You have any, uh, general thoughts that you want to get out of the way before we begin our chapter commentaries, Albert? Um, I guess just my really brief thought is, you know, this uh, you know, for something that I think does a good job of capturing the the just ugliness of war. This was some engaging stuff. This volume overall was pretty engaging stuff. So I was I was pretty gripped by it. I was I was into it, you know. So it's mm-hmm. it's, it's good read. And uh, you know, in spite of the ugliness of it all, there is something uh captivating about it at the same time definitely yeah i think i think there are even little pockets of beauty here and there even amidst the devastation i mean a lot of those moments are fleeting and also punctuated with death and destruction but still there's something poignant about all of it and i agree that this is one of the volumes that has been pretty gripping like even compared to the rest of the series so far i think this might be my favorite volume that we've read uh mm-hmm. up to this point just because it feels like a lot happens and i think there's a lot of interesting and fascinating scenes that just stand out to me some pretty cool lines here and there and just yeah just moments yeah just exactly the the bits of drama and uh just how they how the i guess i don't know what the word for it is like you know, like when you're as you're watching history or events play out, just the way in which they play out is just there's a gravitas to it, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think the way that Yasuhiko portrays the flashback arc is also uh, kind of reminiscent of maybe how a documentary might be mm. shown. Like there are yeah. definitely scenes here in this volume where the lettering changes and you just get like little bits of narration pasted over the the pictures that kind of describe what you're seeing it's it definitely gives me those documentary vibes like we're seeing the history of the world unfold before our eyes and seeing yeah. it recorded in in this fashion for posterity yeah that's that's the impression i get from how he presents it at times yeah i was going to say you know up to this point we've kind of learn the personal history of char as it's tied into the history of the 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 space noids and and zeon and you know just how things have unraveled between the federation and uh, zeon right mm-hmm. and even though i'm well immersed in the things that are going on right now i i think things are just captivating enough where there's a part of me in the back of my mind that 
as I'm consuming all of this and as I want more of what I am currently gorging myself on in the present, there's a part of me in the back of my head that wants to know how it's all going to play out. You know, I'm not saying that I necessarily want to fast forward past all this stuff to like get to how, you know, to get to the point where the people get their comeuppings, but I think it's just got it, gotten me to the point where I'm chomping at the bit on some level to see what the payoff is going to be. You know, they've, they've primed the pump enough for me where now I'm ready. I'm ready to watch the bodies fall, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what's that one song? Oh, the, the bodies at the floor. The floor. <laughs> <laughs> we got a disturbed reference. Is that disturbed? I, don't bo- I don't even remember. I, as far as I can tell, that whatever the band was that made that song, that was the one song that they ever did, and it's it's probably the song that they, that will go down in the annals of history as the one song that they will ever be known for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Anyways, yeah, that's that's what I was getting at. All right. So shall we begin our chapter commentaries? Let's do it. All right. I'll I'll read the recaps. So as uh, people may remember, the chapters in these volumes, for whatever reason, are just labeled sections. So instead of chapter one, it's just section one. And as a reminder... Uh, Gundam is a story that I'm familiar with. I've read the manga all the way through in the past, but for Albert, he's still going through it for the first time. So I'm I'm uh, not going to give him any spoilers or anything if I can help it. Mm. With that said, let us start with section one. It is early January in the year UC0079, and we're in the opening stages of the war. We begin with a fiery, jingoistic speech from Giran Zabi as he exhorts the people of Zeon to support the war. The people are drinking the Kool-Aid and rallying around his words. On the front lines, Dozel's forces are massacring their foes. Zeon has attacked Side 2, also known as Hate, which had declared loyalty to the Federation. They don't have the military forces to really put up a fight against Zeon's mobile suits and firepower. Rambaral serving under Dozel, is uneasy about all the slaughtering while Dozel tries to rationalize what they are doing. Dozel's justifications aren't good enough for Ramba, and he storms off while we learn that Zeon plans to pump poison gas into Island Ifish, the capital colony cylinder of Sai 2. They plan to kill all the inhabitants and then drop the colony on Jabro. This plan, also known as Operation British, is one of the landmark events of the Universal Century. Most of the rest of this chapter is spent with Yuki, a teenager in Island Ifish, and his romantic interest, Fang Li. There's a poignant conversation between the two of them as they discuss their hopes and dreams for the future if they can defeat the Xeon forces. We see scenes of the citizenry being armed with assault rifles in order to defend their home against the invading Xeon army. The elderly, children, and other non-combatants are herded into shelters while the rest of the makeshift militia tries to fortify critical locations throughout the colony. In the end, it's all for naught. 
Zeon pumps poison gas into the colony and everybody dies and the colony is sent towards Earth. We get some documentary style captions detailing the creeping horror of the colony drop as it takes several days to reach Earth's gravitational field. It breaks up into three pieces upon entering the atmosphere and the largest chunk hits Sydney, Australia. Thoughts, Albert? Yeah, I mean, I think I think this applies to um, a lot of the, the flashback scenes, but uh, but but I think it applies especially to this volume of um, Mobile Suit Gundam: The Origin, which is that in these flashback scenes we do get a more detailed version of uh, bits of history that were introduced to us earlier in uh in 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 the earlier volumes, the earlier volumes of the origin and this this volume especially because the 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 moment where they drop that one side on on earth is kind of a huge deal uh in the mythology mm -hmm. of the origin and for us to see to to get like such a close-up view of you know the individual people that exist on this in this colony uh, as as that entire thing plays out it it adds a layer of just i guess heartache and drama to to the story because i mean generally speaking you know it's bad when they drop a space colony on earth like between the people that died in the colony and the people that died on earth um like you know it's bad but they kind of twist the knife by giving you the story of this young couple and and just yeah just building up that sense of hope that there's something better for them out there as you know as you're watching them just kind of enjoy each other's company and even amidst all the chaos they they still have it in them to hope and dream for something better right and then I guess the tragic thing about it all is you're you in the present having read what you've already read, you know, it doesn't end well. Yeah. 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 And um, the other thing that I'd want to comment on is right up until the very end of this uh, section, uh, when, when you finally see the, the colony crash on earth, like up to this point, it's just been a, this event that they've talked about. You haven't actually seen it. And when they finally close out the, the chapter by showing the immense size of this colony as it's hitting a city, like just the comparison of these two things against each other, this colony is just massive, you know? Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. think, I think there might've been a part of me that was downplaying it in my mind because i was telling myself well i bet a bunch of it might have burned up in the atmosphere so you know it was bad but maybe it wasn't that bad but seeing it here like seeing what you see it's it's like devastatingly bad you know yeah 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 especially uh when we get to the next chapter and it details the exact uh, aftermath of the colony drop and and you were told that uh half the population ends up dying because of that yeah yeah and it, it is 
true of what you were saying about how you uh, imagined it breaking up in the atmosphere because it, it does technically break up in the atmosphere but it just means that three different chunks land on three different places yeah yeah, yeah so yeah. it's like not just bad on on one part of the globe but uh you know on multiple it, levels yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah and but I, I do really like how this first chapter focuses on the human suffering in war and yeah. these two characters that are introduced for the first and only time, yeah. Yuki and Fang Li, they're really nobody in the grand scheme of the Gundam saga, but they are also really everybody, you know? Exactly, exactly. That's a good way it, to put it. Yeah, it's it's a testament to Yaz's storytelling skills that he can actually get us to care about these doomed lovers in just a handful of pages. It's like, you already know, uh, starting this chapter that these people are all going to die yeah. but kind of forces us to spend time with them and just in a couple pages of count conversations and seeing their body language it's it really drives home the point of individual real people being hurt by something that they really have no control over yeah yeah uh, yeah, and the way that it all plays out, uh, you know, again, it's maybe it's a little manipulative, but <laughs> it's it's also true, right? Because mm-hmm. in a lot of in the grand scheme of things, in a lot of these instances where you have these, even in history, where where you have tragedy as it happens, that's that's what the human story is. Like there are people who are just living their lives, don't really want to deal with all this, so. You know, the way that it all plays out is the setup that Rumba Rawl is talking with Dozel and, you know, he's talking about how it's not just a matter, it's already bad enough that they're going to crash this space colony onto the planet and use it as, you know, a, a living, as, as basically a suicide bomb or, or not even suicide bomb. I don't know what the term would be, but just like dropping an asteroid or something on on earth exactly right uh it's just dropping this huge piece of debris or whatever (laughs) but uh the one bit of information that we learn is that as part of the plan they're just going to poison everyone in there and and then we see it firsthand right after this conversation that these two characters have as you know they they stand kind of nobly uh, by willing to defend and protect their territory, but you know they, the 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 Zeons, they 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 don't really care, right? So yeah, uh, as far as they're concerned, uh, their strategy is, you know, the quicker that we make more devastation, uh, the the quicker they're likely to want to give up and capitulate and yeah and and just to see that all play out it's 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 pretty heartbreaking and and to to Mm -hmm. to see it happen to these characters even though we've only known them for a matter of pages you know but but it's like you said they they represent everybody you know yeah it really is heartbreaking it's sad yeah one of the other things that this 
scene reminded me of, um, especially when we first uh, are shown a point of view in inside the colony, and and we see these scenes of all of the citizens being given assault rifles, and you know someone saying we've got enough guns for everybody. Yeah. It, and they're just uh, you know like civilians who were trying to defend their home and stuff. It's it, it definitely reminded me of stuff that uh we saw in the news earlier this year yeah uh, when russia began their invasion of ukraine absolutely yeah 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 just watching all the people like people who were just civilians just days before suddenly preparing themselves by you know making molotov cocktails and just getting whatever they can to use as a weapon to you know fend off um this invading force yeah 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 seeing seeing it in this science fiction story was definitely i mean i I guess it makes sense in the in the context of the story but at the same time i was kind of uh it definitely made me step back put the book down and think about reality you know yeah it felt it felt a little too real given the circumstances of the world around us yeah exactly exactly um I, I also wanted to talk about that the opening scene a little bit too. Just it's mm-hmm. it's in color, right? But it's yeah. all red, and we're watching. Um, I forget what this Giran. Giran. We're watching Giran, and he's just giving this speech, and you know he's doing what all uh, zealots do, or I don't even know if that's what's the term for that for someone who who just kind of stirs the pot. Uh, yeah. You know, um, yeah, but basically he's just doing what he does in his best interest, which is to foment, um, you know, uh, uh, anger and uh, strife and and division, and to get the most passionate voices on his side, so that he can justify whatever um, actions they're about to take. And yeah, it's it's just. It is definitely a scene that just makes me hate the guy. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's it's definitely a testament to um, you know Yaz's writing ability and and uh, the way that he portrays him and shows him to us. Like this guy's just frothing at the mouth with, you know, spewing his vile ideology. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right, he's just. Again, it's 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 the craft of a writer to be able to evoke feelings in you, and it says something that he makes me hate this guy as much as he does. Yeah, you know, totally, totally. Yeah, and uh, in addition to that, we get a little bit of uh, background on Rambo Rawl too. Um, you know, in this scene because you know, we've we've established in the previous volumes that he's actually as much as even though he's on their side, even though he works for them, he he has these flashes of nobility and dignity in spite of, you know, the masters that he serves. And we learned here that he didn't want to go through with this plan. Um, and in fact, a lot of, you know, younger, uh, perhaps optimistic, um, um, you know, uh, Gundam, not Gundam pilots, but I forget what their their units are called. Zaku's. Yeah, they're Zaku the Zaku pilots. pilots. 
they're they're just kind of you know they run the 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 spectrum of emotions from like you know wanting to be heroes and you know to to just you know doing their job and the whole time he's he's it feels like he's the only one who has enough perspective to tell them these people aren't worth dying for don't do it you know and yeah. he's the one that's willing to step out of the situation like they were telling uh dozel is telling him at one point he he wants to put him in charge of this this plan and you know there's lots of promise of um glory and an opportunity to yeah, restore like, his like how much glory is there in in poisoning civilians. a bunch of civilians yeah right and and yeah it, it just goes to show that maybe the you know the enemies aren't there's still your enemies at the end of the day but uh yeah, there's there's a lot more complexity going on there uh within their ranks besides are you saying that there are very fine people on both sides uh no that is not what i'm saying okay <laughs> <laughs> i'm just saying that it's probably more complicated than that and you know to to paint a swath such such a broad brushstroke um it it might help to to have a little bit of perspective is is all i'm saying yeah that's you know? fair i think that's, uh, especially, that's logical especially if i i, I don't want to like reveal too much but um because i do think that it's covered a little bit later on in the book but if if we're to pursue peace with our enemies then you know uh it, it can't be an all or nothing kind of situation is is what i'm trying to say right because mm -hmm. at the end of the day um at the end of the day uh, you know that attitude that all or nothing that you know if you're not with me then you're my enemy uh, <laughs> and you all have to die like that that's it's not an attitude that's gonna that's gonna bear any real fruit honestly yeah yeah but um yeah i'll elaborate on that later because i do feel like that as a concept is something that we see you know they they, they it does feel like it's it's a concept that they're kind of edging a little uh you know kind of exploring a little bit on the edges of uh as we go further into this volume but yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one more thing about this chapter that i wanted to bring up to you did you think it was strange how their plan was to drop this colony on earth but then they didn't have like some kind of physics expert calculate the trajectory so that it would actually land on their target because they were trying to hit jabro and none of those pieces hit Jabro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it was a simpler time, I guess, <laughs> you know, in terms of writing and story storytelling. And I guess you could also tell yourself that at the end of the day, the whether they hit the targets or not, the devastation was still wrought and maybe they got you would just you would just think though because these space noids right they're, they're supposed to be the master race man how could they make a mathematical <laughs> error like that <laughs> right 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 
they planned it they planned it all out to the nth degree <laughs> they thought they wanted to make you think that's what they were trying to do but they had a different plan all along <laughs> they're we're playing checkers they playing chess drew okay okay <laughs> We can't we can't even begin to know and think what they what they're planning, all right? Got it. <laughs> all right. Uh, Anything else on section one or shall we move on? Yeah, let's move on to section two. Okay, section two. The devastation wrought by the colony drop is absolutely cataclysmic. The three broken sections of the colony drop all do massive damage to Earth, although Jabro itself is unscathed. In addition to the initial destruction, many more people die from the after effects of starvation and disease. In total, half of humanity's population dies in the first week of the war. Back on Zeon, the Zabis are discussing what's happened and Girin is doubling down on the war. He says that even though they missed their target, they can continue fighting. He proposes an attack on side five, also known as Loom, which is torn between the Federation and Xeon. Degwin points out that Giran has killed billions already and still wants to kill more. In a chilling panel that exemplifies the depths of his depravity, Giran points out that as long as they win the war, they won't be prosecuted for war crimes. Like it or not, everybody else has to be committed to his cause now. Mm. After the meeting, Dozel returns to his home and sees his wife, Zena, and baby, Mineva. He tries to spend some quality time with them and comes to the realization that he was responsible for killing millions upon millions of Minevas. However, he resolves to do whatever it takes to protect his Mineva. We then see what's happening in Loom. The Federation forces have been using Side 5 to regroup, but not everyone in the colony is happy about it. There's heavy protesting and counter-protesting. Some citizens are loyal to the Federation while others sympathize with Zeon. The protesting breaks out into riots and people are getting hurt in the streets. We see Sela working at a hospital administering first aid to people. She gets a call from Tachi, the guy who was hanging out at the bar where Hamon works and who knows Rambaral. She gets a call from Tachi who meets her on the roof of the hospital and he tells her that Shar Aznable is the Red Comet. He also tells her that he thinks her brother Casval is alive somewhere. After Tachi takes his leave, Sela gets another call, this time from Roger Aznable, asking her to return home because her father, Don Tiablo, has collapsed due to a heart attack. The chapter ends with the Black Tristars and Shar looking over their newly painted mobile suits. Yeah, it's more detail that they give you about the aftermath of things right so it's Mm -hmm. on the one hand it it feels like it's it feels like it's the thing about a lot of history which is to a lot of people history just feels like a lot of boring facts and details and you know we don't really think about the history as this event that took place and the the lives of the people that were affected by it and just how it's all like dominoes in the sense that one event triggers uh, a multitude of events in, in, in following it that, um, you know, result in just 
this massive destabilization, right? So we're we're definitely seeing that happen here with um in in the brief aftermath of this of side what was it side five side seven side five is where uh things are happening in this chapter I mean, which, yeah which one was the one that was dropped uh side two side two okay yeah so yeah so shortly after we see side two like again it's that whole thing where yaz is just kind of leaving us more details to make it super real by by adding things like oh yeah the uh the people here it, it wasn't just this one catastrophic event it it opened up a whole bunch of other things there was starvation and there was again this this sense of complexity and all of it because the people that have no real appetite for war or conflict decide uh you know begin to riot because one it's almost understandable that uh the government that that you would could be mad at the government that you live in for not being able to protect you from it and you just want to be spared further death mm-hmm. so on on some level you 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 almost kind of get it but the other natural reaction is to be angry and to want to strike back and you know it's in this tension that everybody just becomes that much more where where things just become that much more heated right uh yeah. like at, at that point it wouldn't surprise me if the the governments in play decide to take extreme actions because you know one we're in the middle of a war and if we're to preserve um our way of life then it's going to mean quelling the people even the people that we supposedly rule over and are charged with protecting it might even mean that if we have to remove them or penalize them for you know speaking out we'll do it because again we're we're in dire circumstances right mhm mhm yeah and that scene where dozel is you know looking at uh his child and he's just kind of wigging out because he's he's thinking about all the people that he's killed and he can't help but bring it back to himself and his child and you know to feel that sense of pain it's 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 an interesting scene because earlier on in the book he's the one that's talking to Rambaral about poisoning all these people and yeah the way that you see him in in the previous volumes of the origin we were talking about how he seems like he might be the one guy that's actually might be okay or not as bad as the others mm-hmm. you know and in that moment where he's telling Rumbaral that oh this is the plan we're going to poison all these guys and then crash their home onto the earth killing even more people than that like he was really rationalizing things yeah you know it 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 was really a moment that took me out of that headspace where i was looking at him like oh he he could be this uh you know out of out of all the characters available to us he could be the one rational person that we could work with to maybe bring an end to all this you know but but nope <laughs> yeah exactly in that moment when you're seeing it it's just like oh 
he's almost as bad as the rest of them, you know? Yeah. And then seeing his reaction here in, 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 you know, when he's with his family, like, I get it. Like he, it's like you were saying earlier on in your uh, summary where they thought that this action would win them the war, but now they're really committed to it. So mm-hmm. if, if anything else, their their sense of commitment now comes from a place of self-preservation because they have no choice but to win this war now because if they lose then there's a chance that they'll be hung in the public square you know so and and you see that internalized here with dozel who's talking about you know he he knows that he's what he's done is is monstrous but after that brief moment of feeling bad about it he Again, he rationalizes the entire situation by telling himself, but I can't have that happen to my child. Yeah. So if it means yeah. that I have to kill all of them in order to <laughs> make sure that my child doesn't get, you know, receive the same fate, then I'll do what I have to do, which mm-hmm. is like, I understand wanting to protect your family, but. It doesn't but you got to kill all these other families yeah. just to do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and why, if, if you were really a good guy, you'd kind of take responsibility for your actions too. You know, you would. <laughs> well, if you're, if you're really a good guy, you wouldn't have done that in the first yeah, place. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're right. You're right. You're right. But it, it just makes it hard to empathize with him. Like I, yeah, it, it's again, it's, it's the complexity of it all where I get it. I don't, necessarily agree with it but i get it and i don't know it 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 tears me in a bunch of different directions because on the one hand if if this guy is the guy or um if dozel or his dad are the ones that can bring an end to to all this then you know if we have to work with them then we'll work with them but on the other hand it's hard to not want to see them get their comeuppance too you know yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cuz just by their very nature of their high position and influence within the hierarchy of leadership, yeah. they're definitely responsible for all this stuff that's happened. So whether or not even if they wanted to bring about a peaceful end to it, they've already done this horrific yeah. thing. How do you go so back? So like how do it? you how do you just uh pardon or forgive somebody who's who's done stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. But, and I think that's kind of the, the running theme of this, uh, this particular volume is that in history, we see that over and over again, like to some degree, that idea that, you know, the, the victors are the ones that get to write history. There's, there's definitely a truth to that. And unfortunately that means that justice isn't always a thing that you get. Right. Yeah, because it's it's almost a matter of convenience because again, like there there's only so much appetite for death and devastation uh, before people are looking for some sort of end. Um, it not to keep like taking it back to to like the real world, but. If we were to look at it in in through the filter of like what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, it's it's that sort of thing where I, I don't know how this is going to play out, right? 
but mm -hmm. I think realistically speaking, um, the way that it looks like it's been going for the past couple of months, like this could be a long and protracted conflict that will just wear everyone out. And when this is all over, like the people that are looking at this and who think, oh, this is going to be the end of Putin and this is going to be his downfall, I, I don't really believe that. I don't. I don't even. That's pretty optimistic. Yeah, exactly. Right. I think if anything, what's going to end up happening is it's going to be a thing that just drags out for who knows how long. And then when people's appetite for death and destruction comes to an end, um, there's going to be some kind of peace, but it's not going to be very satisfactory. And if anything, all you're going to get is an end to hostilities, you know, but at that point, the, 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 the emotional toll has been taken already, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and, and at that point, you've already developed a sense of just generational, um, what's the word? Uh, Animosity? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, just a grudge that's just going to transcend yeah. um, time and history. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that was bleak. Yeah, it is, man. It's yeah. it's pretty heavy. It's pretty heavy. Yeah. But uh, I guess, yeah, those those definitely are the themes that the story confronts and makes us think about. Yeah. One of the th one of the other things that that uh, stood out to me in this chapter uh, was near the end of it, uh, and it's the scene on the rooftop with Sela when after she gets the bombshell news from Tachi and he leaves, she's by herself. And on page uh, 93, there's a splash where she's just alone on the roof. And I really like that moment, man. Just the, the way that it's it's framed, it's, it's impeccable framing. She's just centered in the panel on the page alone. And uh, you, you really just see how alone and broken she is. It, it, I feel like it really gets us to empathize with her and- yeah. Uh, you know, even though all the other stuff that uh, is going on in the story is heavy with with death and and destruction and stuff, this moment of just again uh, a single person's a single individual's uh, pain in in the situation, you know, like that. There's something uh, just personal about it that I think it works in the context of telling a story that's uh, about the entirety of humanity at war. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's very similar to how the first chapter frames, or the first chapter has that story with the two young lovers, and even though they're not really anybody, uh, you know, it, it says a lot about what's going on in the overall story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just by giving us these little personal emotions and personal vignettes with these different characters, yeah. I feel like that really complements the grand scale of the overall story. It it really works for me. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of um the Civil War documentary that uh what's his name did? Ken Ken Burns did like a few years ago. Uh not mm -hmm. a few years ago. It's a it's a long time ago now, but uh the thing about that documentary was like it was just this massive hit and in large part it was because he he told the Civil War in a way that was really about the the human stories. He humanized all those stories, right? And um, 
again, it was this thing that just ran the gambit of human emotion uh, from the triumph of the characters as well as the tragedy of it all. And uh, yeah, like Yasuhiko does, understood that without that stuff, um, it just, it's very easy for it to turn into, to gloss over it and just have it become dates and numbers and places yeah. and locations, right? So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it, I feel funny talking about it a little bit because it feels like, um, you know, I'm I'm almost trivializing like real war, but I I think again it's the ability to capture uh, human emotions and, and to make it believable that makes it. That, that's the that's the the power of it all right yeah it's it's regardless of whether this is a thing this is a story that involves a uh, giant mecha and uh far out of out of space battles or whatever mm-hmm. um, it's it's the ability to tell a believable story in that setting and and to tell it with that level of humanity and with that kind of a message that I think that's the talent of it all, right? That's the thing that makes it, uh, I guess, artistic, you know? Yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's beyond just this thing that you can just look at and kind of dismiss as, Oh, these are, it's just about giant robots killing each other. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot more depth to it than just straightforward action. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Shall I summarize chapter three? Uh, by all means, go for okay. it. Okay. Section three. Xeon High Command holds a meeting to discuss their next plan of action. Girin insists that attacking Loom and the Federation forces currently stationed there will bring about a swift end to the war. Dozel, having taken Girin's previous words about being war criminals to heart, reminds all of the assembled leaders that if they lose the war, they'll all hang. He then details the plan of attack on Loom. Xeon's forces are about equal to the Federation forces currently stationed at Loom, but General Revel's fleet will certainly provide backup, and Xeon will essentially be outnumbered three to one. However, Dozel's trump card is the mobile suit forces under his command, and at the end of the meeting, Shar and Gaia are introduced to the room. On the other hand, we also get a scene of Rambaral grousing around back in Hamon's nightclub. Ramba won't be participating in the attack, but some of his comrades say their farewells to him before they head out. Back in Loom, the spaceports are crowded with thousands and thousands of people looking to flee and move to Xeon. Sela is back home in Texas Colony. Don Diablo, recovering in bed, is happy to see her. Roger Asnabel takes the time to tell Sela that he and his wife are fearful of the political situation and plan to move to Xeon. That's obviously not an option for Sela, so they say their goodbyes. The political unrest continues to worsen, and that night, citizens from the nearby town run to the hotel where Don Diablo lives. They're being harassed by pro-Federation sympathizers, and these People are out to hurt and kill people that they think are Xeon sympathizers. 
Sela takes in these residents, organizes them and the hotel staff to fortify their home and prepares to deal with these rioters. The old school hotel has plenty of old school weapons and someone gives Sela a Winchester rifle. And I got a note right here. As a couple of guys who have played quite a bit of PUBG, the Winchester, <laughs> that was always the gun that we picked up only if we couldn't find anything else. <laughs> right? Seriously, it never felt like it did a lot of damage. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, uh, I guess it's better than just having a, a blunt My object. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sela, however, is deadly accurate with it and kills a couple of rioters who are charging at the hotel. Someone with a Molotov cocktail charges at the home and Sela shoots him and he drops the explosive on himself and begins to burn. However, it's only the first wave and more attackers are coming. At the end of the chapter, we see Revel's fleet launching from Earth and it's a massive intimidating force heading into space. Thoughts, Albert? Yeah, uh, I think the most powerful section of this is that scene that you described where Sela is in New New Texas, you said? Texas Colony? Texas Colony. And, you know, amidst the chaos of it all, as people are really dealing with the tensions of, um, you know, whether an invasion is imminent or not, you, again, this is a, a moment of captured reality where I think Yaz does a good job of perfectly encapsulating what human behavior would be like under these circumstances. And it's totally believable that you would see that I could imagine that there would be people who are so stressed out and tense about the situation as it's playing out that just in order to feel like they're doing something, anything to, to relieve them of that pressure, they'll go out of their way to start persecuting their own people because, hey, that feels like helping, you know? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's like they just looked at these, uh, you know, regular families and thought, those guys must be Xeon sympathizers. Let's kill them. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty ridiculous mob mentality, but unfortunately, I feel like that's reflective of real life. Exactly. It's... If... Yeah, ex- if I've learned anything about people, it's that giving them the benefit of uh, doubt under those circumstances rarely leads to anything good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's the sense that again, under under this extreme pressure, um, you know, when whenever you have communities, what do they do? Is they when there's no one else to uh, put this energy on they they tend to turn inwards and to look at people within and 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 it's that sense of like zealotry that exists right where well you're not as uh devoted as i am for x y or z reason and therefore you must be the enemy yeah 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 so if you are not with me then you're my enemy yeah and we we've seen that so often and it's kind of that gray area that exists in war because uh you know it's back to the earlier comment that i made about how um you know it's almost understandable that there are people that would speak out against the government when these things happen uh that there are several sides that 
manifest themselves in that moment because you know people people are anxious and um whatever their feelings are uh about the conflict they're just coming out in in just a variety of ways and on the one hand you don't want collaborators but on the other hand uh you know people should have some degree of freedom to to say what they want and to speak what they will yeah it kind of feels like attacking you know a family with little kids isn't really gonna save you from being infiltrated by zeon yeah. sympathizers you know yeah yeah exactly so it's 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 a it's just a i guess it's another way to capture just the complexity of war and and again the the federation i guess over the course of the series is kind of our point of perspective so i think it's fair to say that we're the, the logical take would be to that we're on their Are you side rooting, as the reader, you're rooting right? for the federation i think so right I, I think that's what he's trying to set up but at the same time there's so many there's so much nuance that's taking place here that even that uh that alignment with the federation does feel like it forces you to question it you know mm -hmm. yeah because again the the federation it it's the federation here and they are the ones that are under under attack but the but under those circumstances the people that are around are just they're just wigging out and that's what happens when uh you know when when everything's tense and you just don't have anywhere to direct that fear and that energy um you just direct it inwards mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. were there any other scenes that uh jumped out to you in this particular section i think you've touched on most of the things that that grabbed my attention Maybe the scene with uh, the brief scene we get with Rambaral, that one kind of stood out to me because it's, if I remember correctly, I believe this is the last time we see him in this volume. So I, I guess I just thought it was kind of a strange way to like leave him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It it's it it goes back to what I was talking about earlier where. Even, again, even though he's kind of established as working for uh, Zeon, um, you know, there's he's not a Zabi. He's not a Zabi, right? And there's something about him that, and and his de decisions that make him seem more noble, in spite of the fact that he's working for the enemy. Yeah, and, I mean, he still carried out orders that were atrocities i think i mean he still attacked that colony at the beginning of the book because he was you know following orders yeah he drew the line at at uh you know poisoning civilians but he was still uh you know doing what he was commanded to to yeah. take down this colony that wasn't they didn't really have many defenses you know they don't they didn't have any way to fight against these zakus and and you see like these opening scenes in chapter one where the zakus are just blasting the colonies apart with their weapons and yeah that that's pretty much a slaughter right there too yeah so how how noble is he <laughs> you know it's like i i get 
where he's coming from mentally. Like sometimes uh, I think the maybe the reality of the situation has has dawned on him. So mm-hmm. like I I I guess I I got to give him some credit for that. Like he's it's kind of like what you were saying earlier about Dozo and how he sees his daughter and realizes uh, that he's killed a bunch of other people's daughters. But that just resolves him to do whatever it takes to protect his own daughter. Yeah. Whereas I feel like with Rambo, we're seeing him like he 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 may not have a daughter, but he realizes what he's done, and instead of being resolved to make it so that no one can ever do that to him and his loved ones, he just kind of gives up on fighting. Yeah. Which I I, I guess is still kind of better, maybe I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's certainly more understandable. Um, yeah. It's just this sense that. He's he's fighting a, a tidal wave, and he's just resolved himself to his circumstances because he can either choose to participate in in this bloodshed or he can, you know, do harm to his family and his name and uh, his status by mm-hmm. actively going against them, or he can just kind of sit idly by and take the le- the lesser of all the i guess punishments or i don't even know if it's a punishment but uh, uh circumstances i guess or consequences there we go mm-hmm. he, he mm-hmm. can take the lesser of the consequences by not doing anything and you know just kind of bad mouthing them in a bar where yeah. he can just kind of just be like well I didn't go with these guys. I didn't, I didn't, at least I didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> He's probably uh, still at the bar right now saying, I've got the moral high ground on them. <laughs> right. But uh, again, I do think that's just another, again, that's just another one of those gray area things that war tends to be just chock full of, which is sometimes what can you do? Yeah, you know, and and sometimes the the most noble person is just the person that's the least disgusting. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> way of phrasing it, man. <laughs> yeah, right. I, but especially under circumstances of war, like like if everyone has blood on their hands, if everyone's just you know uh, complicit at this point, maybe you take the best heroes that you can get whatever that looks like mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. it's it's yeah it's it's again just this thing that just makes you question what the right answers are and sometimes there just aren't any you know yeah yeah, yeah. that's true yeah the other thing i wanted to mention is don Diablo because i think in a previous episode when he was introduced, I was calling him Don Tibolo because I don't know how to pronounce stuff. Yeah. That's how it looks like when it's spelled out. I was listening to another podcast, uh, Giant Robot FM, and they were going through the origin OVAs and they were calling him Tiablo. So that that actually sounds like it makes more sense to me than Tibolo. I mean, I don't <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce stuff. Those of you who listen to our podcast know that we often struggle to pronounce people's names. Yeah. So. It was just something that uh made me chuckle when I was reading over my notes. Uh yeah, it's a it's kind of a signature of ours that 
for the sake of expediency, we'll just, well, okay. It's certainly a signature of mine that for the sake of expediency, I'm just gonna say whatever. And like, I'm gonna presume that our followers, our listeners are gonna figure it out on their own. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna be like, you know what I'm talking about. You know, that one guy. <laughs> yeah, Mr. T. Yeah. <laughs> you know, be always, yeah, he pities fools. That's what yeah. he do. <laughs> he ain't got time for your jibber jabber. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Chapter four. We pick things up back at Texas Colony as Sela continues to lead a defense of the homestead. As the fires and fallen attackers rage outside, emotion pours out of Sela's face as both sides regroup. Soon, a nurse fetches her, and we find that Don Diablo has died amidst the intensity and stress of the situation. Sela takes a few moments to mourn, but the respite is brief indeed. As the second wave begins, the people in Texas Colony see an explosion in one of the other colony cylinders outside. Zeon has begun destroying the docking bays of the cylinders. It seems that Shar, in his red Zaku, has destroyed the bay of the Miranda Colony. Sadly, Roger and Michelle Aznable are on board a transport that gets caught in the explosion. Shar thinks about his sister and hopes that she's safe and that she can get out of danger. Everyone at the Tiablo homestead, including the pro-Federation rioters, sees the explosion in the other colony. Realizing that Zeon is already attacking in force, the rioters lose their will to fight. In his red Zaku, Shar lands on the outside of Texas colony Sela looks up and sees the red Zaku and is drawn to it, recognizing that it's the red comet. In space, Admiral TNM is taken aback by the attack on Loom. Revel, too, seems surprised and sends a couple of his flotillas to aid Loom. The Xeon Special Assault Battalion begins prepares to sortie with the Black Tristars giving a pre-launch speech in the safety of their Guazine-class flagship. Degwin and Garma observe display screens presenting the space battle. Garma is anxious that Shar is getting more glory than him, but he's also nervous and overly excited about the battle, and Degwin is none too pleased with his son's undignified behavior. The chapter ends with Dozel's forces and Revel's forces exchanging salvos. Mm. Albert, your take? Yeah, it's... It's another example of them filling in the details of these huge historical moments uh, within their mythology, right? And the way that, well, okay, there are a couple of things, uh, but I'll start with this. So uh, the, the, the one thing that I was thinking about was this scene with uh, Rebel, uh, mm -hmm. the, the leader of the Federation. Like, I think when we last talked about him in the episode prior, or not prior, but in a previous episode, uh, there's this sense that one of the running themes of Gundam, the origin is that, you know, grownups just don't understand, right? Yeah. So it yeah. seems like people are really upset at the le leadership because, you know, their priorities are just all out of whack. And I remember there was that scene with, where Kai was talking about Revel and he was saying, 
Oh yeah, he got his uh, forces wiped out or decimated in the battle, and then he managed to survive and get a promotion. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But there's like, it seems to be a thing that happens within the internal politics of militaries where, um, you know, usually when we're accustomed to hearing stories about uh, militaries and, uh, you know, their victories, uh, in the circumstances where we have the, you know, where we have hindsight, um, the, the militaries that win can look at it and be like, oh, they, there was a cohesion there and, uh, you know, because of they, they just had a better military leadership, which is true, but we don't always get to see kind of the politicking that happens behind the scenes. And mm -hmm. a lot, in a lot of cases, that stuff does exist, too. And I, I have a, you know, I've never been in the military, but I have a sneaking suspicion that it's just human nature that, uh, you know, when people are put in positions of power that they they politic for, you know, for glory or for whatever, right? And mm -hmm. and now we get to see this guy rebel in in the moments before his greatest failure, and he's everything that we thought he was. <laughs> he's just kind of a preening, <laughs> preening, um, you know. It's, it's a idiot. funny scene that we get because when we're introduced to him in this chapter, he's eating a sandwich, but he's the way he's eating a sandwich is unlike the way I've ever seen anybody eat a sandwich before. <laughs> Like yeah, he he treats it like he's eating some fine dining or something, man. Yeah, he's it looks funny. He's got the he, napkin wrapped around his his chest like a bib, and he's yeah. got an extra napkin on his laps on his lap. Yeah. But he's just eating a sandwich. Yeah, it just goes to show how like ridiculous of a character this guy is, and <laughs> and this guy's their hero. This guy's the hero of uh, right? Like, yeah, he's he's the leader of their forces. <laughs> yeah, like and. And again, with the added context of uh, the realization that this guy was responsible for one of their hugest defeats. And then, you know, he was a joke to begin with. And then even after his failure, what was their course of action was to appraise him as a hero and give him more power. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's it's the sort of thing where it makes you almost go this has got to be a work of fiction there's no way that people would be this foolish but at the same time it's so absurd and so ridiculous there's almost a part of me that believes that it could be a thing that leaders in the military infrastructure would do you know yeah yeah now that you bring it up, I should have done some research into this to see if there were any famous generals or admirals in history who badly lost a battle and then Still uh, survived and got a promotion. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that there were a lot. And um, again, we we don't hear about it quite as much on on our end because you know whenever we read history books, we talk about how great everybody was at. Um, Oh, I can think of one 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 particular general who wasn't that great of a general, but okay. who who uh, so during the Civil War there was a, a general the first general that they got to go up against Robert E Lee was I think he was the first general was a guy by the name of Robert McClellan. Okay. And and the thing about him was he he's a guy who was pretty pompous and pretty full of himself. You know he came from like 
a pretty good family and the thing about him was he he was kind of a peacock of sorts and he would go around and he i guess the one contribution he made to the uh army of the north was that he did get them organized and he would win battles for them but then the thing about him was he had no real stomach for for war so even if he won a battle he would act like he lost that battle and he would never pursue his he would never pursue robert e lee or um any of the confederate generals to the point of victory like Hmm. he would fight them win the battle and like both sides would retreat to their sides and he would always act like he lost the war even though he was winning and that's what was dragging out the war for so long during um the civil war and the thing about him was eventually abraham lincoln asks him to leave but all the generals that came after him were just were more incompetent than him so at one point he invites him back to be the general for you know for all of the northern forces the same thing happens and this guy just didn't have the stomach to to fight and win you know mm-hmm. and this guy I've was a, yeah I'm, I'm looking him up on wikipedia yeah. just to, but now now you've like totally piqued my interest i'm gonna have to read this later to yeah. educate myself it's his name is george b mcclellan yeah and this guy was just so full of himself that even though again even though he would win battles he would tell himself that abraham lincoln was an idiot for not giving him the resources to like resoundingly win he was if he was a gamer today he'd be the kind of guy who would either like throw a game or like rage <laughs> quit because he, he wasn't getting his way i have a feeling that's the kind of guy he would be <laughs> yeah i'm just yeah. imagining george b mcclellan playing overwatch yeah <laughs> yeah he'd be like oh you're not gonna do what i tell you i'm just gonna sit in this corner and i'm gonna emote yeah <laughs> yeah but again he was he was a dude who um you know abraham lincoln was not liking the results that he was getting out out of this guy but he had no other choice uh at, because at least this guy was winning victories even though he couldn't close the deal so at at one point lincoln had to go back to him mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so there we go a little bit of history for you yeah, dropping some knowledge. Yeah. The other thing I, I wanted to talk about in this section was um, the scene where Sailor is just, you know, massacring all of these uh, these rioters at at the at her home, yeah. right? Yeah. It's it's interesting to look at that and look at how she is in 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 the present when we're reading about her, right? Because yeah, up to this point, she's been almost this like doe-eyed optimistic you know picture of a a, this really caring human being right Mm -hmm. and in the present uh when we we're introduced to her she's she's kind of a stone-cold killer you know yeah there's there's so there's clearly something that happened between then and now that established her as this person and we're kind of waiting for that shoe to drop that this whole time. And I, I, I would totally get it. if this is one of those inciting moments for her where that hardens her heart and hardens her resolve. Cause you know, even though she's working for the Federation in the present, 
it does seem like there's a coldness to her and you know this understanding this belief that the federation was responsible it was the people of the federation that were responsible for her you know the death of her her you know adoptive father like yeah it totally makes sense that even though the federation is the lesser of two evils she doesn't really have that much love for them <laughs> yeah, yeah totally totally and I, I think that opening uh a couple pages of the of the chapter absolutely encapsulate that like the first panel on page 152 where we get a look of her face as she's holding the the, the gun and the tears are streaming down her face like that's a pretty powerful image i think and it, it really says a lot about about who she is and and like what's going on internally because yeah she's just looking over the sights of the winchester and then the next panel we just see the the body of that guy who dropped the molotov that she shot and you know the body's just burning up and she's just staring at all this destruction and then we yeah. get a little bit of her internal thoughts and she she says she calls them animals and then she she thinks to herself, there's no difference between the Federation and Zeon. There's nothing but madness. What drove everyone crazy? Hate? Greed? And then before she can continue her thought, you know, somebody else is attacking, so she has to shoot him too. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just a testament to, like, what war does to people and just, you know, how lives are ruined and how people end up losing their hope in humanity you know yeah 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 another powerful moment in this chapter is when Sela finds out that don tiablo has passed away I, I thought that was a pretty moving scene it's it's pretty sad it's also just this moment of uh not exactly a peaceful moment but the fact that we get this moment right in the middle of their home being attacked it, it feels like it's it's a different tone you know because you're going from this scene of really intense urgency and being under attack to a moment where the world almost stops for a few yeah. seconds here and all she can really do is be sad that her father is dead mm. yeah, yeah like that scene where she's at his bed on uh what is this page 160 and she she just thinks you are a wonderful father really and truly and just falls to her knees at his bedside that's just, that's a powerful moment man like that's some really good drawing uh just the way that yaz captures the emotions in her face and in her body language it's really convincing acting yeah i wanted to ask you one other thing um mm -hmm. in the scene where she sees the red comet like I, I think it's fair to say that up to this point she's she's deduced that is it fair to say that she's deduced that that's char that's i think so i, I think it, right yeah it, it seems like that's what she's probably figured out although she hasn't actually said it out loud to anybody else or even uh you know we don't we're not privy to hearing her think that or anything but i believe so because in the 
previous volume, it seemed like she. You think she kind of knows too? Then, like at the very least, she's putting the parts together. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. when she learned that the real Shar Aznabol uh, became this really dedicated and successful uh, Zeon cadet, like that was probably the first thing that made her question it because when we met the real Shar Aznabol, he wasn't really that sharp. He was a doofus. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And and I I think there there was definitely a part of her that was well. She I don't think she could have been certain that her brother was able to survive the bombing. But yeah. I think uh, having that sense of doubt was always there. Like there's there was also always some doubt that her brother was actually dead. She couldn't. Yeah. She had nothing to prove it. But it was just more of a feeling. And then in the previous chapter, when Tachi tells her that her brother is alive, even though Tachi doesn't really have any proof either, I feel yeah. like that's the moment where it kind of confirms it in her in exactly. her heart. You know, exactly. like she may not have any solid evidence, but just based on how well she knows her brother and based on uh, what she knows about the real Shar Aznabal, it just seems like she's. Yeah. She's got her her guess here, you know, like she she's got her suspicion, and it's a pretty strong suspicion, I think, and probably one that uh, maybe she maybe she's not a hundred percent certain, but I yeah. feel like she's got to be like ninety something percent certain, you know. Exactly, exactly. And when you think about it in the context of the moment that we witness as the readers when they see each other uh, for the first time, when Shar sees her for the first time um you know after that yeah uh one back in battle. one yeah like there's there's an added weight to that uh moment because yeah i think you can tell yourself that that's the moment where she knew 100 percent for sure obviously right but she had her sneaking suspicions up until that point yeah yeah so yeah um the other thing that i wanted to bring up was this moment at the end where uh what's his name gob uh garma garma and his dad yeah degwin yeah garma and degwin they're together right mm -hmm. and you know that's it's it's another sort of moment where we get to take a peek behind the curtain for everything that led up to what we know has happened and you know um seeing them as they interact and seeing um, Garma again, just the way that he behaves, uh, the way that he treats this all like a game, and um, you know, um, up up until this point, the the biggest thing that we know about Garma is uh, that he died, and his his death was this huge uh, momentous touchstone for Degwin, right? Mm -hmm. But this is a moment that gives us a peek behind the curtain where we get to see, like kind of the the slow moving uh pieces coming into place uh for everything that is that has happened or that will happen and and what we're seeing is you know he's he's super naive about this entire situation and he he's yeah. a guy that you know almost treats it like a game where he just really cares about the accolades and you know wants to be wants to get glory and uh and we we all know sitting in the future that this is going to just lead to trouble for him 
but it also <laughs> yeah. gives but it also gives us this perspective that it's not like he was a good dude it's not like he was uh, a noble dude and like later on we're gonna see him do some stuff that again just confirms that he wasn't just some victim in all this he yeah he, he did some bad stuff too you know so like i can't feel super sorry for him yeah uh, exactly that, that he died <laughs> uh, yeah yeah that's that's all i had but if you um yeah if you had another moment or something that you wanted to go over like go for it uh i guess the only other thing this is kind of a minor point but uh the irony that roger and michelle asnable also get killed by Shar. basically it's whew, man he killed that whole family dude yeah essentially yeah he uh he is waiting for his revenge he is but but the thing is i'm i'm waiting for him to like the sweetest fruit is going to be at the end of this i I, i'm hoping (laughs) (laughs) you know like sucks for them but (laughs) it's uh I'm I'm gonna trust the plan. I'm gonna see this all play out, and and then we'll talk. <laughs> uh, and I I won't spoil anything for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. really interested in seeing how you how you react to how it all plays out at the end. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And yeah. Not not too much else for me other than to say again, Don Diablo. Pour one out for poor old Don Diablo. He was. Yeah. A good father, not the stepfather, but the father who stepped up. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Got that one from Giant Robot FM. <laughs> it made me chuckle. All right. All right. Section five. The battle is in full stride now, and both sides are exchanging fire. A Xeon capital ship is sunk. And Dozel emotionally commands his men not to let the deaths of their comrades be in vain. He commands his ships to go full speed ahead. We then cut to a lone Federation recon jet piloted by Ryu Jose. All is calm at first, but then Dozel's fleet suddenly overtakes him and his wingmen. He reports in to his superior, who carelessly dismisses his intel and actively says Ryu is in for a court-martial. On Revel's flagship, his senior officers are talking about getting ready for a victory parade before being totally caught by surprise by Dozel's forces. Revel's ship takes some heavy damage, and all of the ships in the Federation fleet are under fire. It's pure chaos in the Federation fleet as their formation is totally disrupted. Revel is lucky to have survived the initial volley as everyone on his ship gets into their normal suits. The Black Tristars launch and act as the vanguard of the Xeon mobile suit forces. The Zakus are too much for the Federation, and they wreak unchecked havoc. It's a very one-sided affair. Ryu's recon ship gets blasted apart, but he somehow survives thanks to his normal suit. Revel himself is on an escape escape skiff, but is captured by the Black Tristars. The Federation simply has no answer for the Zaku. And again, at the end of the chapter, Shar is having his way with Federation capital ships. So yeah, this chapter was uh, pretty heavy on the action, but you really get to see, 
I think the thing that stands out to me is that you get to see how powerful the Zaku is compared to all these capital ships because the Federation was totally not prepared in terms of the armaments of the battle. They didn't have the right tools to compete against the Zaku. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. There's just something about watching uh, Shar like just revel in the fact that he's just butchering all these federation people that i don't know it keeps taking back to this idea of him as kind of a like the joker or something where people just love him for how you know how like how much of a wild card he is Mm -hmm. and and it's that thing where he yeah he's 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 really good at what he does, but unfortunately, what he does isn't very nice. You know, <laughs> he's Wolverine. <laughs> he's the best there is at what he does, but what he does isn't very nice. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think as time grows, uh, there's there's a part of me that does find him. I don't know if I'm on board the the Char love train because there is something about him that that i find irksome and and bothersome and and the idea of you know like he's just not a hero in my book you know yeah i mean he's he is uh maybe he's not a zombie but he's still dressed in the accoutrements of a fascist party right right and he's you know carrying out their orders and he's killed a lot of people including people that were civilians yeah i mean at the end of the day like you might want to cheer for him because yeah he's he's playing the long game he's going to strike back at these people uh you know so he's just biding his time and just you know pretending that he's on their side and until he can slowly like chip away at them and like really hurt them right so like i sort of get that but at the same time like the just callous disregard for everybody else is just it's pretty horrendous you know yeah yeah i I actually think he's a sociopath yeah exactly right so yeah he really doesn't care about anyone except for his own revenge yeah and and that's the thing it's it's again uh it's uh, you know, if I had to cite another example, it, it's kind of the the people who kind of idolize like the Punisher or something like that, where there are times like, don't get me wrong, I like the Punisher as a character. I I I enjoy Punisher stories, but there is just something deeply wrong with that guy too. I, I wouldn't look at that guy as a moral center or anything. Yeah, know? yeah. I mean, there's a difference between people like us who appreciate and enjoy the punisher for the stories that he's in versus people who just think frank castle is awesome and he's their role model and that's how that's how that guy doesn't take any crap he does what he wants he's judge jury and executioner that's how i want to live my life and that's like yeah you're like that's ridiculous absolute worst lesson that you could possibly take from this yeah exactly (laughs) i mean Uh, i think it's it's super bad ball energy man it's super what small ball energy yeah 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 tiny testicles super tiny testicles it is man it's pretty ridiculous to center your life philosophy on 
a comic a sociopath. book character. <laughs> yeah, and a sociopath. And a, and a comic book character, yes. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> <sighs> oh, yeah, but it's it's the same thing that I feel about someone like Shar, where people who look at him and go, yeah, man, that's, you know, that's that's how you want to do it. That's how you want to get your revenge. That's the kind of guy you want to be. And it's, it's like, oh, I don't, I don't think so. If I met anyone who looked at that and was celebratory about the kind of guy that he is, I, I don't, I don't think I could get behind that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It'd be pretty tough to want to be that guy's friend. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Another moment in this chapter that jumps out is how callous and arrogant the federation leaders are like they're pretty they pretty much think that they've got everything locked down that they're gonna celebrate with the parade yeah yeah and then they're just caught by surprise before getting wiped out and humiliated yeah i guess it it's one of it's another one of those scenes that shows you the distance between high command and reality yeah i feel like I've I've seen and read a good amount of manga and anime that show these stories where leaders that are really high ranking up there they have no real sense of uh the cost of actual war they're just so yeah. accustomed to sitting back and being in charge being in charge and assuming that victory comes handed over to them on a platter yeah so they're totally their minds are totally not on fighting a military battle. They, they're not thinking about strategy. They're thinking about the celebration, the glory. And it's it's pretty ridiculous stuff. It's pretty sickening stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like, how do you expect your people, the people that, you know, serve under you or, uh, or, or you know, that fill out the ranks of your citizenship to not just revile you? <laughs> Yeah, you know, with that sort of attitude, that that level of just utter disregard and carelessness for the job. Yeah, you definitely. Job, as a man. reader, I, I I felt that man. Yeah, like when uh, Ryu Jose, we get a, that little scene of him, a cameo from him in the flashback, I guess. But we see him report to his superior that the Xeon fleet is actually where the Federation doesn't expect them to be. And his superior just dismisses it and and says, when he gets back, I'm gonna give him a court martial. Like, what the heck, yeah. man? What is yeah. that? This guy's are you professional? Are you a professional soldier? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I do feel like again, this is this might be like a recurring theme in a lot of post World War II Japanese stories, where as a I guess in in a situation where art imitates life uh one of the i guess one of the pet themes that shows up a lot in the post-world war ii era was the idea that our 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 military leadership although we 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 looked at them as you know being the prize of our our nation like a lot of them were just kind of idiots you know like and and again there was uh you know out of touch with the regular citizenry Exactly. And there was, I think there's historical records that show that there was a lot of infighting and, uh, you know, just fighting over really inconsequent, inconsequential stuff for the uh, Japanese military during the war. And 
you know, I didn't want them to win either. So, you know, the fact that <laughs> they sucked at what they did good for them. I'm, I'm glad that part worked out, but you know, it's, it's something that they live with because the people had to suffer because of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's just a theme that I do feel like I, I see quite a bit in, in at least anime. Um, Mm-hmm. I, I imagine it's in other works of Jack, Japanese fiction. So yeah, yeah. All right, moving on to section six. Then Shar continues to dominate the Federation ships. His own subordinates note that Shar is somehow three times faster than a normal Zaku, even though his model wasn't fitted with any special thrusters. Back at the Xeon Command Center, Girin is absolutely delighted with how the battle has unfolded. Cassilia enters the room and they have a meaningful conversation. Cassilia's spy network leaked false intel to Revel to mislead the Federation. And though both of them praise each other, it's obvious that there's a lot left unsaid beneath the surface. Cassilia implies that Girin intentionally manipulated their father into a vulnerable position, but Girin avoids directly responding to her insinuation. Dozel's forces crush Revel's fleet, and at the end of the battle, he holds a moment of silence for all of the fallen Xeon troops. Back on Degwin's flagship, Garma is high on their victory and chomping at the bit to go out and get some glory for himself. Degwin harshly rebukes him, telling Garma that he's just a child who doesn't understand what a terrible thing war is. In the aftermath of the battle, the citizens of Zeon are cheering in the streets. Giran overlooks the scene while speaking with his father. Degwin pushes for a swift peace, but Giran calls him timid because a complete victory is assured. We get to a point where Degwin drops a Hitler reference on his son, after Giran leaves, it's revealed that Cassilia was standing behind a curtain listening to their conversation. Degwin tells her that Giran frightens him and says that she's the only one who can stop him. We get a scene where the Black Tristars are chilling in a hotel, but they're pissed off that Shar is grabbing all the headlines. We also get a scene where Garma tells Dozel he wants to see some action and that he doesn't want to be seen as the spoiled Zabi brat. Dozel seems to feel sorry for him and promises he'll talk to Giran about it. At a decoration ceremony for all of the troops, Giran gives another jingoistic speech while the Black Tristars fume at all the attention Shar is getting. Shar and Garma have a conversation, and Garma is proud to announce that he's going to lead mop-up operations in Loom. At the end of the chapter, we see Garma leading his armored regiment in the streets of Loom indiscriminately laying waste to buildings and shooting at helpless fleeing refugees and minor pockets of resistance who have no hope against a Zaku. Mm. I kind of feel like the Black Tristars are your spirit totem animal with all the negativity they're throwing towards Char. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Yaz is doing a good job of just making me feel all sorts of ways about all these characters you know <laughs> it's it's just giving me whiplash <laughs> uh yeah um 
but maybe it again it is just that thing where this particular volume just really throws this into the gray area of everything so i i, I really don't know who i'm supposed to root for even though instinctually there's a default <laughs> you know group of people <laughs> to root for but even then i don't feel particularly good or great about it um yeah yeah and and this is uh the, the end of this uh well first of all i want to talk about how um this chapter does show us a lot of the inner workings of the family uh that of uh, the house of mm -hmm. zabi and just kind of what their dynamics is i think a lot of the times through things that are unsaid and through the art we, in previous volumes, we've gotten uh, minor flourishes and uh, minor peaks at what's going on. Uh, you like we know that uh, Degwin is is it Degwin? Uh, the no, father? No, 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 not Degwin. Um, the Girin. Girin, yeah, we know that Girin yeah. is kind of sneaky, right? And but in this chapter, this is where we really see that they're dynamic with one another in like full swing like even to imply that he would go so far as to encourage his father to take this position with his ship where he could get killed right in front of everybody like we could totally see how that work would work out in his favor because hey guess what uh you know if my dad dies then i have a martyr on my hands and i i have full control i'm i'm next in line for power and um i'm gonna have full control of this situation that's mm -hmm. uh that's pretty uh machiavellian yeah yeah <laughs> it is yeah and his sister isn't that much better she's just as uh manipulative and uh tricky and just sneaky as as him casilla casilla right Cecilia, Cecilia, like she's she's all kinds of bad. I can't say that I have any fondness for her either. And then, you know, right at the end, we in in the previous chat section, we were talking about how, you know, uh, Giran's death was supposed to be, oh no, Garma's death was supposed to be this huge uh, moment for us because we saw Degwin cry about mm -hmm. Garma, and you know. Maybe we're supposed to feel a little sorry, but you know, here, right here, we see him for what he is. This guy was a mass murderer. He just butchered <laughs> yeah. all these people. Uh, I'm not gonna feel sorry for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly, man. Exactly. It's 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 pretty interesting storytelling. The way that uh, we get that scene at the end where he and Shar, Garma and Shar, have a conversation and. And Garma is boasting about this new promotion he has and what he's going to yeah. do. And then it just immediately cuts to a scene of him ordering his troops to slaughter helpless people, you know? Yeah. And he's just, you know, he's gleefully doing it. And, yeah. And for what? Just for glory. So that it's funny that he doesn't want to come off as this pampered, uh, you know, he doesn't want to feel like he's getting his glory for nepotism or whatever but in behaving that way he is doing exactly that just showing how much of a spoiled brat he actually is mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. so yeah it's 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 a pretty gross family and uh it's 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 hard for me to imagine uh 
feeling bad for Degwin that his baby boy died. <laughs> his baby boy. His baby boy. His baby boy. Oh. <laughs> I can't. I can't. Yeah. I don't have that level of sympathy for him. Yeah, how could you? It, it's it'd be pretty hard to work up sympathy for someone like Garma after we see what he's really like. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, this this entire like rivalry that he has with uh, Shar, it's it's pretty immature, and you know, we're we're talking about like lives at stake here, and and the only thing that you can think of is like getting a couple of medals or getting accolades or something. It's just a true sign of immaturity, man. Yeah, yeah. And not only that, but he's going to get his accolades by ordering his Zakus to shoot yeah. refugees who are just trying to, you know, flee to safety. Yeah. Like, like, what is, what is even the point of, of attacking the city at that point? You yeah. Know, like, they've already destroyed the Federation forces so the people that are left on the colony, there might be like a handful of Federation soldiers there, but they yeah. can't do anything. And then all the other people that we see, they're just people whose homes have been destroyed. So they're just trying to go wherever they can. Yeah. What's the point of taking your tanks and mobile suits down there to run over them and blow up all the buildings and, and shoot them? It really serves no purpose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it just shows how like small and petty this dude is. Mm-hmm. Ain't about that. No, no sir. sir. <laughs> what did you think about Degwin's Hitler reference? Uh, it makes sense in the context of painting this guy as just the worst kind of monster. Um, granted, in 2022, this guy might be might have more fans than <laughs> than uh, than we'd yeah. like to think. But yeah, uh, I mean, he's he's. If you're going to make a point about war, um, then there's it, it almost makes sense to draw reference to the worst kind of monster that you can possibly choose to reference when it comes to war because it, it drives the point home, right? Is like, it Godwin's law, though? Like, should we, should we just stop reading now? <laughs> no. No, I don't think that's the case. Uh, it's it's a work of fiction that is about the the atrocities of war, and you can't address that without addressing one of the worst monsters, uh, you know, war criminals. Uh, that that's a cautionary tale um, that you can possibly have, yeah. right? So. Uh no, no, I don't think this is a thing where we invoke Godwin's law and we say, ah, I'm done reading this now. <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah. And for the record, the Hitler reference is on page 270. Yeah, that's where that that was definitely a scene that that jumped out at me. Um you you, you not only get a Hitler reference, but you get a reference to Napoleon and Tojo as well. Yeah. Yeah. The, it, it all just ends with Giran giving this rant about how the space noids are the next stage of human evolution. And he just, yeah, yeah it's completely misses the point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like how, how much more can you lean into being yeah. 
uh, Hitler. How delusional follower. are you? Oh, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, man. Uh, yeah. Okay. We can move on to chapter seven or section seven. Let's do this. One of Zeon's military leaders, Lieutenant General Makvey, fancies himself a connoisseur of Earth culture. Cassilia meets with him to give him his new assignment. Makvey will be the leader of Zeon's invasion forces on Earth because Cassilia recognizes that he wants to invade Earth and reclaim its culture. Despite the rumblings of peace talks, he is not interested in peace because he prefers not to bring the war to an end. Cassilia tells him that's why she nominated him. The Federation is reeling, and after getting soundly defeated at Loom, and of course the colony drop was absolutely devastating as well. To assuage Makave's reservations, Cassilia tells him that they will be sending Garma to Earth under his command. That practically guarantees that Zeon will not abandon him. Secondly, she tells him not to be worried about the Federation losing its will to fight because she's taken quote, some steps. At the end of their meeting, Cassilia puts on her mask, leans toward him, and tells him that she detests Girin. Meanwhile, Revel is a prisoner of war. Degwin goes to visit him face to face. They both want to end the war, but there's nothing that a POW can do about that. Back on Dozel's ship, he has a meeting with Lieutenant Commander Shar. After some small talk, Dozel tells Shar that the Federation are developing their own mobile suit, and he wants Shar to lead a task force to find and destroy the site of Operation V. He even gives Shar his own Musai to command. Later, while Shar is taking his new capital ship and crew through training maneuvers, there's a prison break under the cover of night. Some mysterious soldiers surreptitiously free Revel and transport him to the docking bay. Eventually, they manage to get him onto a waiting Federation Salamis-class cruiser. However, the chapter ends as Shar's ship detects the Salamis. Hmm. Thoughts on Chapter 7, Albert? Yeah, I, I, I briefly spoke on this a little earlier where we talked about how sometimes uh, under the circumstances of uh, war, once once uh, you know the the thirst for war has been exhausted, uh, you're kind of in this place where you end up having to force yourself to make amends with the the people that you have available, as opposed to the characters that you want to make peace with. And I think this is a good argument in favor of that. In that when you have uh, characters or people whose, whose main outcome for war is total victory, like the, like this uh, general here, what's his name? Um, Makave. Makave, right? Makave. I've, and... I've heard some people pronounce it Makuve, but I, I think I just got used to calling him Makave. Uh, I, I'm fine with calling him Makave. That it rolls off the tongue a little easier for me. And mm -hmm. you know, as we know, I'm a person who's very accustomed to. You just what? pronounce stuff how you want to pronounce it, like exactly. instead of exactly. debris. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm very focused on my own comfort as opposed to anybody else's. So 
there we go. <laughs> yeah, why give the French the satisfaction of pronouncing it debris? Just yeah. call it Debris. That's how it's spelled. There's an You're S. Americans. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to do what I'm on to do. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but this Machiavelli and Cassilia, their their entire attitude is just what is a victory unless it's a total victory, right? And mm-hmm. you know, and and it's just a thing that makes them as gross as Guerin. Um, you know, it, it, again, just goes so far as to solidify in my mind that this family is just this family just needs to be wiped off the face of the planet. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but. Uh, you know, for them to go to the links of we're going to try to make um, we're going to try to make a half-hearted attempt at peace talks, but really what we want is just an excuse to keep fighting because we know that we have the uh, momentum on our side, and as long as they keep fighting, we're we're going to get what we really want, which is not a victory, not like some sort of settled truce uh, where we have to, you know quote unquote make peace with them we're going to get a real victory where we get a total victory over our enemies and mm-hmm. you know they again this this is just a thing where they're not concerned with the amount of lives that are going to be lost uh they're not concerned with uh the destruction or the devastation they just it, I, I i don't really have anything other for it other than just ego and pride at this point yeah um Unless there's something something that you're seeing that I'm not, but no, I think that's pretty much it. There's just evil motivations all around. So yeah. Yeah. there's no, they they might give some lip service to human evolution or you know this nonsense about space noids being the the way that humanity should evolve into or whatever. But yeah. it's that's what it is though. It's it's really just this this nonsense that gives them uh, almost this religious kind of yeah. fervor to feel okay doing what they're doing, which is just killing a bunch of people. It's it reminds me of something like manifest destiny as a as a guiding principle, right? Where yeah. Like, well, of of uh, the heavens that be tells me that I it is my destiny to to rule. Then who am I to argue with them? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, man upstairs like that, said, it, it makes it hilarious that people actually held to that doctrine. Yeah, well, but that's the sad part is that it's a it's a pretty stupid way to look at it. At, yeah. uh, at at expansionism and yet people believed it because they just needed any excuse to tell themselves to yeah. believe that it'd be okay to just displace a bunch of people and you know kill a bunch of people them. yeah because you know they said it's cool <laughs> you know yeah. like if they were meant to win it then they would have beaten us right <laughs> yeah 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 but the other scene that works uh kind of as a counter to this is the scene where uh degwin is talking with um revel revel right and he's having this conversation and at this point revels he's beaten there's there's nothing left for him and for degwin to do this it, it, it again goes back to that idea that he's he's having this conversation with him about 
well, you guys are at such a bad place. Like, what other choice do you have but to, you know, uh, meet our terms, right? Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. he's trying to come up with some sort of out that they can come to, some sort of compromise that they can come to that'll end this war. And he has this conversation with Revel. Revel? Yeah, Revel. Mm -hmm. And you know, at one point, all Rebel can say is like, "What can I do?" Um, you know, I'm I'm your prisoner. I'm here. It's not like <laughs> I can dictate these terms for you. And you know, you can tell that the the gears are slowly turning in Degwin's uh, head, and he acknowledges that. So, I don't know what it could mean uh for what he might do or for what might happen but it, it it definitely shows that he's got some form of awareness about the situation mm -hmm. and yeah and, and it goes back to that idea where well if they can make peace happen if if they could have made peace happen with this right even though degwin is has his fair share of responsibility for the situation as it's occurring um like is our pride so much that we would tell ourselves that a peace with him is no peace at all because you know he's not the kind of person that we want to make peace with because you know he walks away from the situation uh essentially with what he, what he wants mm. uh i mean that's that's when it comes to war that's that's kind of the hard question that you have to ask yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And and I, again, I'd take it back to someone like Putin, where when this is all over, if, if the situation ends, like, am I going to be glad that it's just over, or is there a part of me that would be too proud and too prideful to accept that sort of an end because he didn't get, uh, you know justice or you know like we didn't take him out or whatever you know yeah like an absolute victory yeah exactly right so it's and and we're seeing that play out in russia and ukraine right now uh in the sense that there have been you know quote unquote peace talks that they've been having but the talks are really just show talks the concessions that the russians are asking for like the 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 ukrainians just don't feel it, it just doesn't feel like the ukrainians are going to budge on those things but again how much more appetite for this can they can they realistically have i don't know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah it's a good scene uh that scene between uh degwin and uh revel just kind of hashing hashing out the details of of this uh i guess thought exercise but yeah but realistically, uh, you know, the the reality on the ground is far, far different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What'd you think of uh, Makave as a character, by the way? He definitely makes me think of a dandy, like <laughs> one of those uh, Victorian dandies that are just like really high class and just have this high opinion of of art and culture and yeah. uh, you know, like sort of this noble or aristocratic leaning exactly it's exactly. It's, it's yeah it, it's very weird to see that in 
a military leader and it just makes him come off as that much slimier than your average evil general or whatever you know yeah yeah and the and and then of course like the fact that we learn uh his view on the war and how he wants to continue the war and prolong it it's it just goes to show that even if uh he was just gross to begin with he's definitely a bad person you know he's interesting cuz he he sets himself up as this cultural elitist but he's almost got this chip on his shoulder because you know he he comes from the colonies and he doesn't like the fact that they're seen as you know yeah kicks or something and then yeah. his whole his whole thing is um you know i want to take over the earth because we'll assume the roles of of uh you know the people of earth and we'll we'll assume the culture and yeah, then we'll only be the he one. really understands and appreciates earth culture the people of earth don't yeah. even appreciate what they have see see makave is the kind of guy i imagine he would be a big fan of something like the last samurai or <laughs> the great wall or whatever that movie was called you know like he's right. he's that kind of guy i think yeah right 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 no he he definitely has like some sort of weird chip on his shoulder about uh he he's he's got some sort of insecurity going on for him that's translating into like wiping out all humans so that he can tell himself your culture is better in my hands yeah <laughs> uh, yeah he's pretty disgusting mm-hmm did you notice that uh, he's actually appeared in some of the other volumes, uh, the ones that took place in the present timeline? I wasn't aware of that. I, I thought he was a completely new character, but I guess he's. Uh, we're gonna see more of him. Yeah, he was. He was, at least he was mentioned, and I think we even see him in like a couple of brief scenes in in volume three. But it was like so subtle the way that they played it. Like they didn't treat him like, oh, here's a new character to introduce everyone to. Yeah. It was just like. He was just there because it makes sense for him to be, uh, you know, general. Yeah, he's exactly. He's he's a leader in the background, uh, giving these commands. And uh, it isn't until this specific chapter when we really get a a full introduction to who he is and what he's all about. Yeah, it's pretty interesting storytelling. (laughs) Not dead yet. Anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm hearing here. All I care about is who dies. <laughs> uh, what did you think about that scene or that moment at the very end of the scene with Cassilia and Makabe when she leans in and tells him that she detests Girin? Did you find it interesting that she actually said that aloud to somebody else? Um, yeah, I, uh, I do think there's something about it that sort of makes sense uh in in that she just has even though she's a pretty gross person in her own right <laughs> like game recognized game <laughs> yeah there's a part of her that uh, like can't stand the thought of him either i mean we all assume that just because two gross people happen to work on the same team that that makes them friends uh and, and in this case it's even worse cuz they're family but that's it's really not the case um she really must have uh, a certain sense of just hate for this guy <laughs> yeah yeah it, it, like it's that whole 
it, it almost feels like it's that idea of it's not real unless I say it out loud, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes mm-hmm. you can only take so much of a person uh, un- until you've gotten to the point where you just need to be able to say it out loud for your own sake of uh, for your own peace, you know? Yeah. Because you can only live with that information in your head for so long. <laughs> it's like it's like if I had to work at a place and there was like someone in the office that just bugged the crap out of me and you know I, I you know for the sake of diplomacy I, I'm sure I could live with the fact that there's something about this person that annoys me that I can keep to myself but every now once in a while there's gonna be a part of me that just feels like I have to tell somebody about it anybody about it just so i can yeah. get yeah. it off my that's shoulder. why you, you just get on the podcast and start spewing your venom <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> yeah what you got do you have any thoughts about the prison break yeah yeah so about that uh so with everything that um we've known from uh the previous chapters we've seen again uh from the federation's perspective this was a thing where they they played it off like it was this big heroic thing that happened but there's something suspicious about how this whole thing is going down and looking at it it feels like was it really the federation that did all this there's i mean am i wrong to presume that no i think I think the implication is that Casilio organized this. Well, but that's the that's the interesting thing. Uh, my first interpretation of it was that Degwin might have organized it, um, because you have that scene from earlier where he's talking about, well, you can't make peace unless, uh, you know, that's with, true. With yeah, situation, with the situation being what it is, um, you know you would have to vie for peace, right? And for for Revel to go, well, I can't do that. I'm a prisoner. And for him to go, yeah, you're right. And to like kind of take that long pause to like think about that. That was my first thought. But then I did, that thought did occur to me that when they were talking about how, oh, the war is how Cassilia and uh, Makuya want the war to go on and for them to go, well, if we let this guy out, we're going to, you know, get this war. We can prolong this war to its inevitable end or whatever uh, mm-hmm. to, to, to our wants and needs. So there was definitely a lot there where I was like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. I, like, I really had to question who, who set that up because it really didn't feel like the Federation, you know, had their A game and got it all together. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the fact that there's a federation, a single federation cruiser waiting out at the edge of the colony to pick him up when he escapes, I feel like that's definitely uh, because someone on the Xeon side, you know, secretly contacted them and and or leaked some kind of information yeah. to them. Yeah. But uh, Speaking to your point about Degwin's conversation with Revel, I do, yeah, I I question the same thing. Like, it it does make me wonder if it was Degwin who ordered this or Cassilia, or was was it both of them? Did they discuss this together? We don't really see any scene 
of planning it. We just see it happen. But uh, I, I think based on what we see occur in the final chapter of this book, when, when Revel doesn't want to yeah. agree to a treaty or any kind of peace, he actually commits to continuing the war. Well, I wonder yeah. if that's something that Degwin could have foreseen, or did he just did he just assume that if he set Revel free, Revel would go back, exactly. and then they could have an understanding? Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I thought too. Because on the one hand, there's a way to interpret it where he's just mad that you know they've been made to look foolish, and you know now he he's redoubled his resolve, but uh, at the same time that level of emotionality for that kind of a response got me thinking what if yeah what if he thought that this was a chance for them to make peace and by letting him go he thought that they'd be in a greater position to make that peace but for revel to go around and turn that into an opportunity to you know make more war uh it just enraged him further Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. so it, it did cross my mind to to look at it that way um yeah, i wonder yeah i wonder if Cassilia is such a manipulator of people or you know like a a master of human psychology that she somehow figured that if they were able to get revel back to the federation that he would be the one who would prolong the war yeah, that's... I I don't know if she's that clever though. Like, how could she have predicted what he would do? I mean, but that's the thing with like works of fiction. Sometimes is, uh, you know, we 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 throw certain things out the window, um, because the point is more important than the like logistics of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know. If if they wanted to just enhance the tragedy of it all to, to this thing where we could have ended the war, but because everybody was just so prideful on all, all sides, um, what we got was what we got. Uh, like, I would have to wait to see how the entire story plays out before I make that determination, because mm-hmm. if, if, the, if the ending to it is less than satisfactory, then... I can go, well, they didn't even think that out. What was the point of that entire setup if if the payoff wasn't worth it, right? Right. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Shall we wrap it up with the final chapter? Yeah, man. Let's go for it. Okay. Section 8. We pick up immediately where we left off. Shars Musai tells the Federation cruiser to surrender and fires a warning shot. After the Salamis shuts down its engine, Shar decides to go out in his Zaku, taking his wingman, Denim. Shar actually boards the... Denim, not Venom. (laughs) (laughs) Shar and Venom, your your two favorites, together at last. (laughs) A symbiote. (laughs) That's exactly what Gundam needed. That's exactly what Gundam needed was a symbiote. (laughs) Symbiote. Uh, this is the perfect story now. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you needed. Uh, what were you gonna say? Okay, sorry. So I couldn't help myself. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Shar actually boards the Federation ship and enters the bridge while Denim <laughs> remains in his Zaku, 
providing a meaningful threat. Shar wants to know why this lone Federation ship has come to Xeon's territories. One of the Federation bridge officers thinks it's a good idea to pull out a gun, but Shar shoots the dude's hand clean off. Shar repeats his demand, and at that point, Revel enters the bridge. Shar is momentarily stunned, but puts two and two together quickly. He offers a crisp, perhaps mocking salute, and apologizes for impeding Revel's course. Shar lets them go, and as he watches the Federation ship leave from the safety of his Zaku, he smirks and says, I came very close to ruining a masterpiece of political theater. Mm. On Earth, in Antarctica, the Federation leaders are meeting with Makveh and other Xeon leaders to discuss a treaty or possible armistice. However, during the meeting, Revel arrives at Luna 2 and broadcasts a live speech to Earth, all of the colonies, and the moon. He describes what has happened, but then fervently states that any truce or armistice would be tantamount to surrender. He implores the Federation to understand that they cannot yield to tyranny and a dictatorship. Degwin, watching back on Zeon, is furious. He tells Garma to exert himself on Earth and, quote, silence those ingrates. With passion and in front of Girin, Kisilia, and other Zeon leaders, Degwin slams the bellicose people of Earth and tells Garma to, quote, deal them such a crushing blow that they will never want to wage war again. The volume ends with an idyllic scene on side seven where Fraubo, Hayato, and the kids Kika, Katz, and Letts are enjoying a swim while Kai listens to Revel's speech on his headphones. Frau even drags an unsuspecting Amro into the water. They see a fancy car driving by, and in it are Mirai and her father. They, too, listen to Revel's speech. Finally, we cut to Sela in a Yashima Company space transport, heading to Side 7 herself. With a heavy world weariness, she's also listening to Revel's speech, and we catch the very end of it as he proclaims that Zeon doesn't have enough soldiers and that the Federation is sure to win. It's a tragedy unraveling before our very eyes uh, as we see that they came so close to peace and just putting this, putting an end to this madness. But again, just because of everyone's pride, things are exacerbated even further. You know, you think mm-hmm. that a war that has already killed half the entire population of yeah. the known galaxy or whatever universe, or, uh, I forget which is bigger or smaller, uh, but galaxy okay so for for galaxies the bigger ones uh universe encompasses all of the galaxies okay okay so i guess they're in a galaxy then right or whatever they're sectors of space right we are in the milky way galaxy okay so for them to fight that galaxy (laughs) out or fight that uh conflict out to get to a point where half the population is dead and then for them to continue to have thirst for more like the idea that it could get worse is it's pretty mind-boggling and um you know we we see the pieces being set up for just ultimate tragedy again this ultimate tragedy of uh, a situation that could have been avoided or not avoided but put to an end much sooner mm-hmm. um i guess that's the that's the point of 
the uh i guess the absurdity of war right uh, like mm-hmm. at the end of it all what was it all for like was it really worth gaining anything for that right like, for for the amount of lives that were lost did you really say and uh, the one scene that i i look to again is um you know uh Giren, um you know once once he sees uh revel give that speech where his resolve has doubled and oh uh you mean degwin oh degwin yeah when degwin sees revel give that speech where you know after their conversation you would think that he would have gone and said hey we we should just work something out but for him to go nah man we're gonna double down on this <laughs> yeah <laughs> like we're gonna hit jackpot eventually <laughs> it's like that one that was a bad move on his part but just seeing how uh degwin was just enraged after that and he gives this quote uh he goes exert yourself karma silence those ingrates deal them such a crushing blow that they will never want to wage war again um wait he says the bellicose people of earth still refuse to acknowledge their own defeat deal them such a crush- crushing blow that they will never want to wage war again and it's interesting that he phrased it that way cuz it to to go back to like another uh civil war quote it when i read that it reminded me of a quote by william uh william tecumseh sherman uh-huh. and the interesting thing about this guy was that uh in the early years of the civil war he was the one guy who who was basically telling everybody this is this is going to be bad this is going to last like years but everybody in the north was looking at it they were looking at him like he was crazy cuz they were like we've got the numbers we've got the bodies we've got the resources this will be over in like a matter of months you know and everybody in the north was treating it like it was a game because you know what chance does the south have against the industrial might of the north and the manpower of the north mm-hmm. and so um one of the quotes that he's known for is one where he goes war is cruelty there is no use trying to reform it the crueler it is the sooner it will be over and essentially his philosophy on it and uh, you know depending on who you ask he he's a historical figure so he clearly has his baggage but the basic idea of it was if we're going to have a war we have to fight it out so that it's so like brutal that they will never ever want to have war again you know we will just ingrain in them that war is such a horrible thing that they would never try to you know pursue war again um and that's kind of the stance that degwin is taken here uh yeah in, in fact it, there's another quote that sherman has which is also reminiscent of it where he goes war if war is the remedy that our enemies have chosen then i say let us give them all they want hmm. yeah so it's it's really interesting that they decided to go with that specific phrasing it just reminds me a lot of uh that one particular uh figure yeah that that must be a heck of a coincidence considering 
Yaz is Japanese, like, and to for you to make the connection to the Civil War, that, that's pretty interesting, man. Yeah, well, I mean, Sherman was one of the great military minds to come out of the Civil War, so it wouldn't surprise me if he did a if Yaz or anyone really writing any war fiction, um, you know, did a dive into into his historical background you know yeah that's true and yaz did do a lot of manga centered around history historical fiction i don't think he ever did anything about american history but definitely a lot of like european history um the stuff that fascinated him but yeah yeah it, it it does make sense um considering sherman's significance just as a in military terms so yeah it wouldn't be too surprising to to know if yaz actually did study or do some research on various military leaders throughout history yeah actually when you were talking too um you you made me think of uh, a scene at the near the end of this chapter the one on page 387 when mirai is in the car with her father and they're listening to revel's speech and she says, so we aren't seeing an end to war just yet. And then her father says, no. What can I say? Ruin. There still hasn't been enough humans. Humans haven't pushed things as far as they can go. People might talk the talk, but everyone loves a war. And it just, yeah, that totally reminds me of what you were just saying. And, yeah, uh, yeah it it really does go to show the... Uh, the endless waltz, man. Yeah. There's a there's a Gundam Wing reference that you won't understand there, but it's it's the endless waltz of history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like I seeing the way this ends and um just how things it's a pretty bleak note to end this volume on. You know? Yeah, it really is. It really is a bleak note. Yeah. But it's i'm i'm completely invested and uh they've done a heck of a job just building us up to this point of you know after everything that we've been through everything that these characters have been through and just seeing the horizon on you know just being on the precipice of the horizon only to have there be just more horizon <laughs> Yeah. you know and, and just more distance like there yeah at this point i have no idea how this ends uh i have no idea um you know who lives and who dies i i i, I don't know how how they even come back from this you know with yeah. all the wounded egos that have happened so i'm really curious to see um what yaz does and how they're able to bring some sort of resolution to this if they're able to bring any resolution to it at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself. Mm. I do want to mention the bonus chapter at the end of the volume. Yeah, it's labeled sure. as a special feature and it's titled On the Eve. And this bonus chapter shows us what the various characters were up to leading up to the very beginning of the story back in volume one. 
We see Char moving into position for his infiltration of side seven. We see some scenes of Kika, Katz, and Letts after school with Fraubo already acting like a mother hen. And in the evening, Frau brings some food to Amro just to help take care of him because his father is busy working, presumably on the Gundam project. Shar also stops some of his own men from getting into a fight with each other before they launch their mission. I mean, overall, it, it just kind of feels uh, like a relatively inconsequential chapter, as you might expect from a bonus comic. But I do think it's still fun to see Frau and the other characters in these happier times, maybe the last happy times that they really have on, uh, before the story begins and proper. Mm, yeah, it's, you're right. Like ending on the note that we did end, it was nice to see a little something that wasn't, that wasn't all doom and gloom. Yeah. Yeah. There's just something funny about seeing the kids playing in, in the, or not playing, but, uh, you know, their antics after school, just like the little, it's almost like a slice of life kind of thing where where they see these little bullies and then uh, Let's punches one of them in the face. It's, it, I don't know. There's something amusing about watching these cute little kids be cute little kids. Yeah, especially knowing what happens in the aftermath of it all, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, do you have anything else uh, that you wanted to go into? Um, nothing too much. I, I guess one thing I do want to mention, because I, I don't think we really said anything directly about it, but uh, I think the I really like the artwork in Chapter 5, especially the depiction of the mecha action in during the battle. It's, it's just absolutely gorgeous work, and for... At least for myself, someone who's pretty into Mecca and just loves that stuff up, loves that stuff. I was eating that stuff up, you know, like it was just that was that was uh, my junk food right there. You know, you get a good amount of political uh, machinations and interesting uh, philosophical thoughts about war and all the complex emotional things that uh, come across through the characters. But at the end of the day, you're still reading a comic book, and it feels good when you look at pretty pictures. So yeah, I definitely <laughs> appreciate that. <laughs> it definitely uh, helps that you know this wasn't some jobber manga art, right? Like it, yeah, exactly. It, it just adds to the overall quality of the work. Yeah, it's just so gorgeous, and those color pages are yeah are pretty magnificent. I, it does make me wish that there was just more like I wish there was a version of this where it was just all in color. But <laughs> I, that would still be, be working on it, man. <laughs> yeah, that would be asking too much. I get it. But, you know, one a person can hope and dream and wish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that one panel um, and I, I'm moving on from from Mecca at this point, but there there is one panel that really popped in my mind. And it's uh, the very end, the bottom, the last panel of page 367, when Shar watches Revel's ship escape, and he just smirks and says, I came very close to ruining a masterpiece of political theater. Yeah. I don't know, for some reason, that, that whole scene, especially that panel and what he says and the way that his face looks, it's just so Shar. 
It's so it's very knowing. smug. Yeah, and smug, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and it, it also kind of like sums up this installment of the story, you know, like th- this was a masterpiece of political theater. Yeah. It really is theater in the best yeah. sense of the word. I do think that there's definitely quite a lot of anecdotes regarding history where there's just a lot of uh, stuff or, or things that happened, events where we're just like really if you didn't know it was a historical thing that happened, you'd be kind of surprised by it. True you know? that. Yeah. So, so I, I, I do believe that there's more spectacular things in history than we're aware of, um, mm-hmm. you know, just in terms of political theater or drama or it's, I guess it's weird to look at history that way because, you know, people died, but yeah there's i don't know there's there's maybe that's the thing with with enough time uh in between you can look at these as just stories that you can be in awe of Um, well you know what they say they say that time plus tragedy equals comedy yeah yeah that's why i laugh at a lot of pretty awful things (laughs) if you want to find out what sign up for our patreon (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh that's too funny (laughs) do you have any final thoughts on mobile suit gundam the origin volume 7 battle of loom uh no i think i'm good there uh how about you i think i'm good also man all right so next week we're gonna take a break i will be at san diego comic con so you know We'll uh maybe I'll post some pictures about on it on our Instagram and uh, otherwise um you know we got the episode after that we'll be back uh the week after that uh if there's anything you wanna comment on regarding uh Gundam Origin Volume Seven if you have any questions or just want to contribute to the conversation feel free to hit us up on Between the Gutters podcast at gmail.com or you can hit us up on our instagram at between the gutters uh you can hit us up on our twitter um yeah you know like feel free to you know like and subscribe us and you know dm us and uh if you could rate us on whatever platform you happen to be listening to us on uh, with like a four stars five if you whatever the highest is if, yeah. you can go to 10 do 10 uh if you can go to 100 go to 100 no no half half assing this <laughs> we we would appreciate it thank you all right so yeah in two weeks when we come back from our break we will be discussing the entirety of the series paper girls by brian k vaughn and cliff chang so that's just a heads up in case anyone wants to read along and prepare for that episode thanks for listening this is between the gutters signing off peace out guttering out guttering out guys <laughs>